keep your word impeccable. You know, being impeccable is kind of a hard thing to do. But your actions at the end of the day really what makes things, right? So when you're doing your actions, make sure whatever you do, think through it, make sure that you do no harm intentionally or unintentionally. Welcome to the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast, where IT and digital leaders from around the world talk about their careers, their inspiration, and their vision for the future of digital business. I'm your host, David Wright. The world of digital business is evolving faster than ever, and I want this to be a place where digital business champions create a village to band together and help each other navigate the ever-changing terrain. Disruptive Innovators features conversations with CIOs and digital leaders from around the world, diving into their personal backstory, career, their current role, trends they've been seeing, and their vision for the future, personally, professionally, and otherwise. This podcast is made for people who are seeing how quickly the digital business landscape is evolving. Those who recognize that it takes a village of trusted advisors to navigate this ever-changing terrain. People who enjoy listening to high-level discussions surrounding what it means to be a leader, real-world examples of challenges faced, and industry-specific strategies leveraged to create exceptional business outcomes. This episode is brought to you by Disruptive Innovations, a leading tech consulting firm that helps enterprise organizations with their IT strategy, process optimization, and workflow improvement. Contact them and find out more at disruptiveinnovations.net. Good afternoon, friends. David Wright here, and I am your host of the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast. Today, I am lucky enough to be joined by Dilip Wickramanayaka. Dilip, it's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be on here. Yeah, a long time in the making. Dilip, for any of our listeners who may not be familiar, can you just tell everyone a little bit about your current role? Yeah, so today I'm the VP of Information Technology at uh, Simon Med. I've been there for about five years. I came out of retirement to help Simon Med as the Chief Information Officer in 2019 and gracefully stepped down when Lee Milligan came over, take it over, and, and then he asked me to stay back as VP of IT and take over the infrastructure and all the data center apparatus that we have today to manage in imaging business, which is pretty large. I know you guys are doing some really cool stuff, so I'm excited to hear more about uh, what you guys are up to at Simon Med. But before anything, we just we like to start the episode with just one piece of actionable advice you might look to leave the listeners with today. So, you know, I adopted a while ago a sense of do no harm in your actions. And, you know, we have a tendency to say things with unintended consequences, right? So be aware of what you're saying. So, you know, every time you say something or do something, it usually has an adverse effect or a positive effect. Sometimes it can be a positive effect for somebody and a negative effect for something. So I have to always look at that and see, okay, what is that karmic good or bad that's going to come out of what you do and what you say, right? So, and sometimes we say a lot of things that can affect one another. And going back to somebody like Don Miguel Ruiz, I think the first, what, what is his thing, right? That says, you know, keep your word, you know, impeccable. I try as hard as possible because given the way I grew up, you know, being impeccable is kind of a hard thing to do. But your actions at the end of the day are really what makes things, right? So, 
when you're doing your actions, make sure whatever you do, think through it, make sure that you do no harm intentionally or unintentionally. That's what I live by today. Love that. Great advice. And, you know, love the shout out to the four agreements, which I know we've talked about offline. And, you know, what it makes me think about too, and I want to kind of get into a little bit about your backstory, Delete, but before we do, just is how significant it was for me to develop a pause button, right? Because I'm not responsible for my first thought. You know, I'm going to have a thought or a feeling yeah. that pops into my head that I, I can't control. You know, it's yeah. like it's human nature, but it's what I do with that thought or feeling. You know, am I going to act on it? You know, when I was younger, the space between having that thought or feeling and acting was much shorter. Very short. Especially like in business, I'd have, you know, something happen and I would go into fight or flight, like Mr. Fix-It mode. Like, oh my God, what do we got to do? Like, yeah. we got to, uh, 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 uh. and I've come to find obviously in IT in particular, right? Like a sense of urgency is required on a number of different levels a lot of the time, of course, right? You know, especially when we're troubleshooting or in security incident. I mean, there's plenty of times, but at the same time, there's a lot of times where, particularly from a strategy standpoint, where it's actually going to behoove me to take a step back and really meditate on it, talk with my trusted peers on it prior to making an action. And it took a lot yeah. of doing it another type of way to figure that out. But I was fortunate enough to go through some training for that. So I doubt without that training, I would have got there. So I'm very blessed in more ways than one. Let's talk about you know, career, your life personally, professionally, where did you start out and how did you get to the point in your career that you're at today? Yeah, I know I grew up in Sri Lanka, pretty poor with my grandma. So that's going all the way back to 1957. I think we kind of joke about it saying, hey, those are really good years. There was a lot of innocence in that period. But growing up with my grandmother gave me a really good basis for morals and to kind of get it done no matter what. Right. So one of the things, key things that she used to always tell me was do not compromise your standards because somebody next to you is compromising their standards. You still keep that. Make sure you're going to do your best that you can do for that day or for that moment. So that's one of those things. And I, you know, I was very lucky or blessed. Again, I think I've been blessed all my life. Even though I grew dirt poor, like somehow my forefathers always went to this prestigious high school which we call St. Thomas's College. It's about probably 180 years old, and it's one of the oldest institutions within East Asia, right? And my grandmother actually went and bullied the deed, and they call it the warden there, to make sure, even though I failed the entrance exam, to get me in there. So that's where my life began. So being in that school, you, you go from kindergarten all the way to grade 12. And in, in my, I guess, school career, right? As I got older, you know, I was a cricketer. And one of the things I realized was that even then, you know, your, the shatter of your wealth or who you are, your, who your parents are makes a big difference on whether you make it to a team or not, no matter how skilled you are. So at some point I said to myself, you know what, this is absurd. You know, if I get into an individual skill, the chances are I'll probably be able to, you know, compete and there's no politics in that, right? So I got into swimming. And at, at first, I was horrible at it. 
And I remember coming last in the, you know, the first heat, right? And you're like, okay, now all you're doing is watching your friends, you know, swimming and making it to the next level and the next level. So one day a funny thing happened. My coach, I love him to death even today. He said, hey, all of you are going to do this two-mile sea swim. And I go, hey, coach, you know, I'm a sprinter, right? I don't need to do this. Right? And he said, no, no, entire team is going to go. And I was so scared of the sea at that time. And I'm like, there's no way in hell I'm going to swim in the sea. He goes, well, either you sink or swim, dude. I mean, literally, you know. So I decided to train. And I thought to myself, let me swim as fast as I can for how long as I can. And I started doing that. Every day I would get into the pool and like a madman, just swim as fast as I can, as far as I can. And in the end, I didn't realize I was really that amazingly good overnight. And so when I went for this sea swim, I didn't realize I was trailing in third place in the over the 256 other swimmers. And it, I thought I took the right turn. I took the wrong turn, but I still came in eight out of 256. And my coach goes, we couldn't find you. We were worried. And I said, well, I was leading. I was looking for my guideboard because my guideboard was always behind it. So I beat everybody in my school that day. And, you know, I was eight nationally in the two-mile sea swim. And it, something dawned on me at, at that point. I said, oh, my God, it just takes effort to get better. That's it. Takes effort. So make a long story short, I excelled in swimming. I represented Sri Lanka in swimming. I represented Sri Lanka in diving. And I represented Sri Lanka in water polo. And on top of that, I did five other sports for my high school. Soccer, field hockey, rugby track and volleyball and all of a sudden i got into these team sports because suddenly i became somewhat of a celebrity and a good athlete and then you know you were kind of sought out it's the weirdest thing i think you know we, we see that here today when it worked right once you get good at something you know you get opportunities outside your lane that you're in right and then i work for a non-profit organization called shape the children federation i yeah i, I got a scholarship to go to the Air Force, to be a pilot. And I somehow decided that I needed to be in some kind of career for the simple reason that the Air Force bonded you for 22 years, which means you couldn't get out. So by, by the time I got out, I would have been 41. And, you know, I think it would have been good for me because I kind of grew up very militaristically. And with my grandmother, she was like, you know, there was no gray area. It was black or white, right? So you just marched to her beat. And so I got into accounting. And as I got into accounting, I got really good at it. And my godfather, who was the managing director of that company, and I was just an intern, uh, he said, Dilip, you're really good at what you're doing. So you know what? I'm going to put you into all my personal clients. And I thought to myself, oh, great. I get to work with the big accounts. Lo and behold, it was all a nonprofit, you know, all the charity organizations that we had. I had to start doing the fund accounting. And I go to myself, oh, my God, what the hell did I get into? Because how is this? going to get me into a career, right? And my aunt, who was the director of Save the Children, said, hey, can you help me, you know, do the books? I just got this job. And so and I, so I would go there for lunch and, and in return, I would, you know, do her books every day. And as Save the Children kind of, its tentacles grew in Sri Lanka and I got bigger. I trained one account and I trained the second account and then they left and the, the second guy who left and said, hey, Marina, why do you want to hire somebody else? Tulip is the one who's been doing your books from day one. So why don't you just hire him? So that was a bit of luck. You know, I get recommended and, she, and then she said, oh, you know what? You know, I'll hire him. Perfect. So I hear, you know, I'd save the children doing all the fund accounting. 
And I came up with a yardstick to measure self-help. Because that's not what they were doing. They would get donations, folks here, and, and the USAID. And then they would funnel that money in there. And they would train the shanties or very low, depressed areas with absolutely no housing to build their own houses. So they became masons, carpenters, nurses, you know, plumbers, and kind of taught them how to do that. So my job, other than the accounting, was also they said, Dulip, we need to figure out what that self-help quotient is. Okay, we put this much money in, but us that payback. So we ended up getting a payback calculator that I calculated saying, okay, based on the number of trade people trade and how they got jobs, this is the self-help that came in and they loved it. So this was metrics in 1978, right? I don't think it was called metrics. I mean, we would sit down and have this, what they call the green and white paper, you know, and there was no Excel, there was no Lotus 1, 2, 3. This is all sit down and type and, you know, it would get folded multiple times and then package got sent back to the US. So because of that, I got offered an internship in the U.S. in 1982. And so I was like thrilled. Like I never thought I would ever make it to the U.S. So that internship got me here and, and I had 300 borrowed dollars and a suitcase and I came out here. And like my annual pay as an intern was $9,600 a year. It was less than minimum wage, but they gave you housing. It was a messy housing. I mean, it was, there was this whole bunch of apartments that they were trying to renovate. And in one place, the kitchen work, in another place, the bedroom work, and in another place, the bathroom work. So I kind of used that whole complex to live in there, but it was free. And I'm like, hey, this is better than when I was in Sri Lanka, which, which by the way, I forgot to tell you, I was homeless at 18 and I was homeless at 21. So having a roof over your head and, you know, it didn't matter which complex I had to go to take a shower, which complex I had to go cook and which complex I had to sleep in. I was like, I was happy as a clam. I'm like, this is great. This is an upgrade, right? At, at all levels. <laughs> So I started going to, you know, Noah Community College and I thought together, it's like, hey, I'm a high school dropout. I never finished high school. I was in, in grade 11 twice, grade 12 twice. I was overage for sports. And, you know, and, and, the, and the warden said, I think you're wasting your time in school. And suddenly, you know, I was outside of the dorm and my grandmother who was sick was living with my aunt and they didn't have any space for me. And guess what? Well, suddenly, you know, I had to fend for myself and find a place to live. So. Being here, you know, coming here, even though I didn't have a network of friends, it was amazing how people adopted me. I mean, at all levels, work. I had my, what I call my Jewish moms. It was awesome. That actually brought me clothing and pots and pans and you name it. And they're like, don't you go buy anything. We'll get you all this stuff, right? And then, you know, what's your shirt size? You know, it's like, and oh, perfect. They just... Exact same size as my husband. Let me get some jackets he definitely never wears. And, you know, so they brought me winter coats and stuff like that. So I, to this day, I'm so grateful to them because without any of that help that I got, I would have never made it. So from there onwards, I think they came up with a, a PC for the department for the first time. And I was fascinated by it. And so we were completely mainframe at that time. And I started dibble-dabbling with computers and Larry Correa, who used to be the director of IT, was an American Indian native. And he would give me access and didn't realize how much access he gave me. And he would always threaten to cut my fingers off. He said, how the hell do you get this much access? I said, you gave it to me. So, I, and I didn't realize that aptitude to kind of, you know, figure things out very quickly. And eventually, you know, we got a PC and I started learning a lot about that PC and then 
fast forward, you know, after 1984, right? So almost 40 years later, you know, I became a pretty technical, hands-on person for a long time in you know, IT. Got into the newspaper business, completely automated a newspaper on a Windows environment, right? When Mac was king, then got into the healthcare industry through sheer fluke, you know, got into Oxford Healthcare, which is now United Health. And then followed the CIO to Columbia House, where I really learned all the high-end computing, data centers, you know, because we were the second largest website in 2001 next to eBay. Even Amazon was small because we were like 200 million in revenue for a website at that time, right? And I remember telling these guys, hey, you know what? We should be able to beat Apple because we have all the digital media. We should really put something out there. And they're like, no, that's never going to work. And they didn't want to do it, right? And look, Spotify and Pandora and all those people came and just shut on everybody, literally. Yep. <laughs> they're ahead of your time. I know. I always feel that when I think I don't have the right methodology. I still don't have the right methodology to convince people that, hey, I see something you don't see. Sometimes I'll ask people, and I'm going to ask you actually at the end of the episode, what, like, what advice would you give your younger self? And, you know, some people joke like, oh, buy Apple, you know, back in uh, 2000, right? Yeah. You know, but on a more serious note, so Dilly, what would you say? I mean, ton of uh, just a great story of like, you know, and I love what you had said in the beginning too about basically, I'm, I'm trying to remember the book right now, but it, one of the classics about how, like with athletes, the difference between like, fantastic athletes and, and very average athletes is typically practice, right? Yep. They just like practice so rigorously and they yep. get better, right? Yeah. It's just, and it seems simple, right? But a lot of people are, are just not willing to take the time to get really good at something. So I just think that was, it was so good to hear like the time that you dedicated to, you know, swimming and, but what would you say is one of the most important things that you learned over the course of your journey personally and professionally and what was life like before learning it and after learning it? So, you know, it's the truth. The truth is in front of you. And just like the scriptures would say, it just set you free, right? We see the truth, we don't like it. And we make up something around it. And then we are completely unhappy because the truth doesn't change. Your story changed. And in that you react so differently to the truth instead of just accepting the truth or whatever it is, right? It's good or bad. It's beyond your control of what you see, you know, whether it's what somebody says or what somebody's done or what happens in the world. It's just the truth. You're looking at it, you're seeing it, and then you react to it very differently. So I've learned to accept the truth as it. So whether it's a friend that lets you down or in, in your kids not, you know, doing what's you think they should be doing, right? And then what you do is you learn to let go, right? It's, it's one of those things where you manage your expectations to a point where it's hard to live with zero expectations. It's very hard to do, but the more you do it, the more enlightening it becomes. So I, I think it's the truth. You know, the truth is in front of you and it just set you free, right? Just accept it. Yep, I, I love that. Yeah, you might not like it. I don't like it most of the time, right? I just don't like it. I'm going, I would love to change it. Or I would like to change the story around it. You can't, you know, it, it is what it is. And in that, you know, my dad used to give me a really 
something. He told me something when I was very young, and he said, "You'll figure it out." He goes, "Julie, always hide in the open." I go, "What does that mean?" And uh, you know, he said, "You'll figure it out," and he never told me. And I finally figured it out. I think very late in life. It's like if you don't have any secrets, if you are very transparent, and you just you know, nobody has anything on you. In other words, if you hide in the open, nobody sees. You know, so you do something wrong. You just own up to it. Don't try to hide it. Just own up to it. Free of the consequences, and you know what? You're ac- absolutely free at that point. How much more that can they punish you? They can't punish you more than once. I mean, they can, but most of, most people forget it, and they go, oh, "Okay, at least you know, is open and honest. You know, we we don't have to investigate as to what happened." Yeah, my friends and I all talk about how you know acceptance is the answer to all my problems today. You know, yeah. That nothing is ever out of place. It's always, you know, in my perception of things. And, you know, for me, and I was talking about this the other night, like it was only after being okay, losing everything or not gaining what I thought I had lost back that I was truly free to like move forward in a different way, you know, because like in, in that moment where I was at a pivotal moment in my life where it felt like kind of, I don't want to say all was lost. That sounds dramatic, but like where I had lost something that was important to me and I wasn't sure if I was going to get it back, that I was able to be okay with me and like be grateful for just my existence and, you know, in getting to that place, it just, it totally reframed the way that I approach life and business for that matter. It's pretty crazy. So I would ask the leap, is there, you know, that, that was kind of a, one of those pivotal moments for me. Is there a time in your life that either you failed at a project or you had a, a moment of, you know, difficulty, but you ultimately took a profound lesson away from that moment? Yeah, I think one of my struggles was my, my temper, you know, so that's when I had to go get help in 2009 and find how do I do this? Why am I losing it? You know, and so I was very fortunate to work with a uh, person who was uh, one of Albert Ellis's protégés. Albert Ellis wrote the book, you know, for Guide to Rational Living. So he was the founder of Rational Emotive Behavior Therapy. So I, as I went through that, you know, as he evaluated me, he had two clients in his lifetime that had a paradigm shift. I was one of them. And he said to me one day, you know, I said, I just wanted to make, have this clear in your head that the entire world around will see your change and they will really admire you for that. The one thing that you're going to struggle is you will not be able to have a bad day at home because your family is not going to be convinced you changed. Every single time you have a bad day, they think the next shoe is going to drop. So this is 2009. Fast forward to 2014 or 13, probably 14. Well, it's one of those things where suddenly nothing I did well with my wife or my two kids. So, so there was nothing I could do or say that did not offend them, whether it was at one watt per channel or 100 watts per channel. Didn't matter. So... I really decided, okay, at that point I was struggling and I, you know, I had reached out back to my coach and he goes, Louis, well, you'll have to figure something out, you know, and just 
I warned you, this is what that's going to happen. And this is where I said, this is the part that might not work for you at the end of the day. So have an acceptance that it might not work for you. So I'm like, you know, at, at this crossroads going, gee, what do I do now? Luckily, one of my good friends recommended Eckhart Tolle, Power of Now. Right? And in that, I think there was a, a chapter on living life without expectations. And I thought to myself, wow, okay. So here I am, have this beautiful house. So here's the example of this beautiful house. And my kids just come in, they're soccer players, put their stinky bags and everything and that all over the, you know, the, the place. And, and I'm like, okay. So, so my whole thing was delete. You can ask them to put it away or you can put it away. If I ask them to put it away, it's going to create adversity and it's going to end, end up in a bad place. If I try to do it myself, it's still going to end up in a bad place. Why are you doing this? Because, you know, they don't want anything. So I thought to myself, okay, so the best way to accept it is let it be there. I will forego having a nice house until whenever that at some point these kids are going to grow up and go. And maybe at that point I can have a nice house, right? So, so this went on for a long time to three weeks. My wife comes and she's really agitated and she goes, you know, you do nothing because the kids are just throwing stuff away and everything like that. And I looked at it and I said, listen, I can't ask them to do it. If I do, it's going to go to a bad place. So I'm not going to do it. I can take it up there and put it away. And, you know, if I do it, it's still going to go to a bad place. And, you know, my good deed now goes punished. I said, you can take it up there <laughs> as yourself, right? Or just leave it like that as is, like I'm doing. And, I'm okay with it. I remember the shock look on my wife's face going, what happened to this guy? And then she said, you know, you're, you're becoming very uh, robotic. And I'm like, no, I said, I am living life without expectation. I have no expectations of this stinky bag, sweaty clothes, ever leaving my the living room. And it doesn't matter if, if somebody I know comes to my house to visit and he's going to be there. And that's okay with me. I'm not going to be embarrassed. I'm not going to be apologetic. It's my house. That's the way people live here. I can't tell them what to do, the right thing to do. So I am not going to engage and be in a, in a situation where there's adversity. I am just going to sit down and enjoy it. And actually, things started changing. It absolutely started changing because they could not find an excuse to engage me to have a fight for the sake of having a fight right there. I remember the dog was going nuts barking outside and I could hear it. And I'm like, yeah, the dog's barking. My son comes down, go, Dad, the dog is barking. I'm trying to sleep. And I go, yeah, that's what dogs do. They bark. And, you know, the neighbors are going to be mad. I said, if the neighbors are mad, they'll probably come and tell me and then maybe I'll bring them in at that point until they complain. I know I'm okay, you know. I'm, I'm assuming that they're okay with it because he's been barking for a while. And if it's bothering you, I said, I would go down, bring the dogs in and go back to sleep. He just looked at me. You know what to say, shook his head and left, right? And the dogs kept barking. I wasn't going to, you know, bring the dogs in. And I think those things kind of taught to me. And it was like, you know, I, I felt so much more in control of myself, right? Because I'm like, okay, I'm, I have no expectations. You know, the dogs are going to bark. What am I going to do? Stop the dogs barking? If, and honestly, it wasn't bothering me. If it bothered me, I would have brought them in. But it wasn't bothering me. You know, it's like, I'm like, yeah, you know what? They're having a good time. They're barking at the leaves. They're barking at, you know, whatever they see. They're barking at shadows. And it really started changing the landscape 
and the relationships between my wife, my kids, you know, and it took time and it's taken good eight to 10 years of, you know, slowly building that up where now they've kind of slowly accepted who I am, my change, all of the above, right? Yeah, because I, I think when my daughter came to me one time and said, dad, you know, you've never apologized for what happened, you know, probably yelling and screaming. I said, no, that's not true. I said, I have apologized more than once and I have actually even written you letters. But what does that mean? And I said, listen, I said, you're going to resent me for the rest of your life. I have no control over it. But I said, I'm done apologizing. I don't need to do this anymore. So if, if you're, this is your choice you make to resent me and that's fine. I accepted the fact that, you know, you're not going to like me or love me. I, I mean, and I said, honestly, I have no qualms about it. So because he, I said, here's my puppy. I, I showed my dog. I said, I love this dog more than I love you right now because with resentment, it is very hard to love somebody who resents you, no matter how much you try, because it, it's a lo lost cause. I know how face fell, hit the floor. And ever, ever since then, you know, it's like a huge change in the attitude, right? Because they're realizing it's like, you know what? You can't hold on to things. You know, you, you, you want a certain amount of revenge. And I said, you're not going to get it. You're the only one who's going to hurt by it. <laughs> what are, yeah. What are they saying? Resentments like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. Yes, exactly. That's exactly right. And there's so much truth to that. So these are the th training that I got that even today, you know, you will get that initial resentment about when somebody does something wrong and you like in your awareness training, you go, okay, you know what? That's not going to help me. It is what it is. And it is what it is. It's a, it's a statement that is really overused, but nobody really thinks about what it is means. Yeah. It's funny. You know, I really appreciate you sharing this, you know, fairly like personal story because in my experience, the growth that I've experienced emotionally, spiritually, and otherwise has led to my greatest successes in business. And not, and that's not the reason that I did it, right? For example, today, I'm very unattached to who we work with, when we work with them, if we're going to work with them. I used to be such a prisoner to like, like, is this going to happen or not? And the more that I let go and was just an acceptance about, we're going to win some, we're going to lose some, you know, and all that I can do is show up as the best version of myself every day and leave it all out there, continue to try to learn, grow, you know, and that's it. And then the rest is out of my control. That's really what it comes down to, right? Is there's so much that is out of my control. And it, trying to control, that's what used to drive me crazy, is if I thought I had any semblance of influence over that, you know? Correct, correct. So in my training, I think one of the things that he, Richard Pecoroni, what he gave me, the insight was, he said, Dulit, you're one of those people who do your best every single time, no matter what it is that you take on, whether it's cooking or whether it's carpentry or doesn't matter, whatever it is, right? whether it's athletics. So you then force that standard on everybody else. Then you expect that standard and then you have to drop those expectations because you can't expect somebody to be as good as you, you know, so you'll get along with people who are better than you, but you're going to have a tough time with people who don't keep your standard. And it just dawned on me and like, oh my God, it's so true. I mean, that's what I was trying to do with my kids, with my family. I mean, you know, with my coworkers, everything, right? So now I, I'm like, okay. 
sometimes at work you have to have expectations or you have to have those hard conversations. But at, at the same time, you go, okay, this is all they can do. If they have the potential, teach them with no expectations. Right. That's all you can do, like you said. Yeah. So, Dilip, let's talk a little bit about, you know, your current role. So you're, you're you know, Simon Med, VP of IT. Talk to us a little bit about Simon Med's vision or, or your vision for IT and technology as it's derived from, you know, what Simon Med is up to and maybe some of the key initiatives you guys are, are working on right now. I know I've been reading about some of the advancements that Simon Med has made in the imaging industry. So, you know, interested to share more with, you know, our listeners, what you guys are up to. Yeah. So our, our CEO is, is very brilliant, right? I mean, in, in the radiology aspects, Dr. Simon is, is an amazing mind, you know, he's 10 steps ahead of people and how he thinks. So it's really great to work with him as long as you understand where he's going. So from a clinical standpoint, he's done a lot to enhance the patient care that he does, right? So whether it's an MRI read or a memo read or whatever it is, he's trying to make sure that we do the proper diagnosis or we interpret what you're seeing in, in that image. So he's put a lot of AI applications towards it to enhance it, right? So to make that read better. My job, on the other hand, that I feel my vision is to try and automate all these things. And then that's where the biggest challenge is because most of the radiology groups that I've worked with over 20 years do not pay attention to data governance. And as they don't do that, it becomes very costly at the end of the day when an exam that you scan a person just might not get paid because we don't have the right data. And in, in that, if you in, engage in RPA with some AI for data governance, your data before it goes to billing is going to be far more accurate and more susceptible to getting paid than not getting paid. So there are, there's a lot of places in the organization where aut automation will make sense, whether it's call center. We still tend to do things manually or we are trying to do Manual, we are trying to automate manual things instead of saying, Hey, what can the technology do to enhance what you're doing today? So don't try to take and say, Okay, I'm going to take this data entry and automate that. Well, that's kind of easy to do. I think that was done probably 10, 15 years ago. But how do you enhance it? Right. There's AI, you know, in, to kind of get, Hey, here's a better way of doing it. Hey, did you check this? So there are a lot of things within call center that you're very familiar with in terms of data entry and data governance and how data flows makes a lot of sense. And then we also don't do what I call modality cost accounting. And it's really important because you can see in a site what modality is really making money and what modality is not making money. And there'll be a good reason why it's not making money. Maybe it's going down too often or nobody, no, none of the referring doctors want any, any scans on that modality because it's maybe too old. Right. Or that, that region just doesn't happen to have that many modalities for, for whatever reason. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. That's super interesting. What about some of the biggest challenges you guys are facing as an organization today? I think most of the organization, I don't think is on the same page. At least that's my opinion. You know, people are not looking at the vision that's coming from the top and saying, okay, how do we complement that vision? Because I think everybody, including myself, has ideas about how to do something better. But at the end of the day, you know, you got to follow the company's vision and, and make that 
your priority. And even amongst my colleagues, you know, or my teammates, you know, I honestly don't see that. There's a lot of posturing, right? So, so they want to do something, which is not a bad thing, which is a good thing, but they need to be able to know how to bring that into play. And so instead of bringing what they want to be in play, they will either not make something work properly, you know, and so that becomes problematic for the entire company at the end of the day. So I watch this from afar and go, okay, I have a different attitude of, like I would give, give my boss Lee, hey, let me give you my 30-second argument because there is more than one way to do something. And I would come and say, hey, this is a better way to do it. And that's a 30-second argument. And after that, I will make sure his way is successful. Now, if everybody doesn't look at it that way, you're not going to be successful. You're going to end up being failing it because it wasn't your way. That's missing. That's missing in my opinion. I think I'm successful because I would make something work no matter what. Okay. I know I don't agree with this part of the thing, but I'm going to give it my 110% to make that work. Yeah. You know, it's funny. And I see this a lot. And I, I was just talking about was someone on the podcast the other day about how like you voice your opinion, like you say, it's important to speak up, right? It's important yep. for me to have the, I like the term like 30 second argument. I think yep. that's very cool. And I tell this to my clients, like, listen, I'm going to come to you. Don't expect me to just be like your order taker. Like I'm here yep. to be an advisor for you. So I'm going to tell it like it is. Now you might tell me, David, you know, we can't do that. And here's why. And maybe I didn't even think of that because I didn't know for whatever reason. And then I don't have to live with that like resentment of, oh, they're not doing it my way. Right. And I just learned something new because I, I didn't know what I didn't know. Yeah. Or they go with that way that the, what, whoever the leader is wanted to go with, it fails. And then I'm able to pick up the pieces and we do it the way that I wanted to do it, you know? Yeah. And because we had a couple of successes in those 30 second arguments. So every time I gave Lee an argument, 30 second argument, he goes, ah, shoot, I have to listen to you now because you might make a lot of sense. Right. So I'm like, it's okay. It, there's more, I said, there's more than one way to do it. I'm just saying from my view, this might be easier, faster, better. Either way, we're still going to get to the end goal. So it doesn't matter. Yep. I just want to give you my 30 second argument, you know? Well, as a leader, right. And as an entrepreneur, like I have to be striving to try to hire people that are smarter than me. Absolutely. You know, and I'm hiring those people so that they can give me, you know, insights and feedback that I don't know about yeah. for whatever reason, right? Like you said, like I need to be responsible for that vision and then setting a level of context. And then I want to try to bring people into the picture who can step up and like work within that context. But give them the freedom to voice, you know, exactly yep. what you're talking about. Yep. So I think it's a great lesson for leaders out there who are listening, because I do see that a lot, what you're describing. Just because it's not your way doesn't mean you can't get to that end goal, right? And in the end, it might be that the way that was suggested, rather than your idea, you'll end up finding out that was even better. And you go, oh, I learned from that. Exactly. One has to have an open mind, right? I mean, the thing is, at the end of the day, I even as a leader has a leader. And my ask on all these leaders is to actually follow your leader and respect your leader and make sure your leader is successful, right? At the, at the end of the day, if you make your leader successful, you're going to be successful because your failure 
is, is also his failure. And, and, and you, you don't want to put him in that position, right? Because you're not going to go too far. And I think my success has always been like, okay, how do I make somebody look better? And in some cases, the leaders have kind of ignored that and taken all, all of themselves. But I've been fortunate to work with a lot of leaders that embrace that and then kind of bring you into that foray when they're celebrating. And for every once in a while that you lose, it's okay. You can lose sight of the fact that, you know, it's still a good way because at the end of the day, loyalty is something that is disappearing today, right? I mean, it's not there anymore. What you said about, you know, a leader bringing you in or not, right? Depending on who it is and where they're at, like whether they can be acknowledged the efforts of a team member or not or whatever. For example, I'm working for a client, like we do a really good job. They don't acknowledge us or we give them all the credit, which we actually try to do. Like one of the things that I try to remember too is to measure myself by my level of integrity, the effort that I put in, like garner satisfaction from that at work, you know, what we're creating together versus the outcome or the expectation of someone's praise, right? Because I may or may not get it, you know? And at the end of the day, we're all just people, right? And I don't know whether it's someone who, you know, they just got a divorce and they're like really, you know, bad out of shape and, and they're just not in the position that they can, yep. you know, provide positive feedback or somebody just died or they're just an asshole, right? It could be a million yeah. different things, but out of my control. So yeah. The thing is that don't expect the praise, right? I mean, it's right. because it's actually honestly nice when it's finally, when you get it. And I can give you some examples. I guess during my diving days, apparently I was a phenomenal diver. I didn't think much about it. And as I meet my older friends and my wife meets my older friends and the first thing goes, Andrea, you have no idea. We used to go watch this guy when he practices because it's just, just awesome to watch him in the air doing all these dives. Like we call this guy the dolphin, you know? <laughs> yeah, actually, that, that no. was one of actually, no, that was my nickname, dolphin. Oh my gosh. And, and, uh, and I'm looking at these guys, you know, this is last May. You had a, they had a dinner dance of our old high school, you know, because a lot of my high school guys are in, in uh, California. So you go on there. So one of these guys flew in from England. And first thing, he, he gave me a big hug and said, started telling my wife how awesome I was during my diving career. And I had no idea that these guys actually took time to come and watch me practice, right? So even though I might have not known, you know, whatever it was that was going on in life, right? There were people who were just out there going, oh my God, watch this guy. And then you're finding out 45 years later going, wow. And it brings you amazing joy you know and i'm thinking like wow you know like all the assumptions that he made that nobody cared and good lord a lot of people cared i didn't know about it that's super cool and i agree it is nice to to hear you know so delete we got a couple last questions for you to round things out one would be on the healthcare radiology imaging front acknowledging that you don't have a crystal ball what do you think will be some of the biggest changes as time passes and or where do you see the industry going in the future? So the in- industry is getting 
more and more sophisticated, right? The scanners that are coming out, giving amazing in- images that are helping not just the radiologists, but also, you know, the referring doctors who are, you know, get wanting one, one that study done on a patient. And I think while the hardware in the scanners are going way up and doing an amazing job, the application suites around it really needs to be either rewritten or forklifted or, re- or pretty much rewritten because what we have today, in my opinion, is not going to enhance those things that is coming out to, to help a radiologist do its job faster, or make a radiology group a little bit more efficient in terms of workflows, because all these applications are pretty much every single application out there today, 95% of them are legacy. They're bad code, bad database structures, right? So... Now, aren't a lot of those applications, I don't want to go down the rabbit hole right now, aren't a lot of those applications proprietary to the hardware vendor themselves? Not really, right? Like if, you, if you're looking at the PACs and if you're looking at the RISHs, right, radiology information system that really is your CRM to run, run your organization, right, from start to finish. Those things are written in a very archaic manner and in a very proprietary sense that it's written to make money rather than to really help the industry. And it's not fluid, right? If you take an iPhone and you, or Android, you know, people who are used to it know how to use it, no matter what kind of upgrade comes in there, like, you know, and if they complain, the manufacturer, Apple or, or Google will go fix it. In healthcare, I mean, a lot of doctors are spending time in front of a computer when they should be spending time in front of a patient. Now, in radiology, they should be spending time in front of a computer, but th- there should be enough tools to give them an enhanced read, right? which is happening, the modalities are getting better and better and better. But the, your PACs is the same old PACs that was from, you know, five years ago. So how is that interpreting those images properly is the question. And so this is where I think Dr. Simon is bringing AI and, and supplementing that with AI viewers and everything like that. But again, from my view, that's all well and good. But if it's not baked into that workflow where it's seamless to the radiology, where it's a click of a button, he gets everything and then bang, off it goes. Yeah. So basically what you're saying is that there's an opportunity for us to build a new risk that could disrupt the entire market. Absolutely. Yeah. New billion oh, risk man. impacts. Yeah. And absolutely. Especially on the risk side. Tax side, there are a couple of vendors uh, who have really stepped up and done a couple of things. They're expensive, but right. it might be worth the expense, right? But at the end of the day, you can e- easily ditch these, some of these, you know, a- applications. So I know some vendors are going the path of what SAP and Oracle did for CRMs where here, here's your code base. We can help you rewrite, modify it to where you want it, or you can have your own application development. And, and I think there are a couple of vendors who are beginning to build results that way so that you can, with a good set of programmers, have a good base, 80% of the, of the code base, and then modify it to your way of doing business. That yeah. might be that might be a good way to go. For sure. Great thought to end things on. So anyway, Dilly, this has been awesome. Last question I just have uh, for you that I got to ask is if you could go back 5, 10, 15 years in time, what advice would you give your younger self? I think one of the things I said, I wish I learned process of rational emotive behavior therapy when I was younger. It's great that I've learned it now, but you know, I'm a slow learner. I was 52 when I learned it. I'm 66 now. And I wish I had learned it at 25. And I, as I talk to these folks, they always say, even Eckhart Tolle would say, we should start teaching these things at kids 
when they're two, three years old, because we'll make a better world, right? At the end of the day, the world will change. People will change in how we behave, how we look at life, how we are, how kind we are to people, right? You know, and I mean, all that eventually will change. But, you know, we are centuries and centuries of some kind of brainwash. This is the way we should live, right? And so we react based on, you know, our DNAs and how we got trained. And as I see my own change, because I was a firm believer that leopards don't change their spots. Nobody ever changes until it happened to me. So I was 52 when that happened. I wish I was 25 when that happened because even then I would have made a so much further impact on life and people around me and everything like that. So right now I try to pay forward and catch up, you know, and, and say, okay, how do I help younger folks think that way? Right. And I think one of the best things that I remember is when I was when, when going through this, I was in a class and this class, you name it, you know, it was for domestic violence. So I was in that group and I became their Zen master. So there were all these people in, they had, you know, things on their legs so that, you know, there was a monitor, right? You know, and sometimes people didn't show up because they were already thrown back in jail, right? So I remember when I left, they all said, oh my God, who's going to take our sessions? And, and I, I felt really bad, but it was one of those things where my change had really like I had started already giving what I learned to like 30, 40 people at a time, you know, every week, right? And I could see their change. And I don't know if, it, if they could sustain the help. They would be definitely become better human beings because we were already there because we, had, we were already in, in a bad situation. We were not good human beings. So, so as you get better, you know, the best thing you can ever do is just to give it back. And so if I, I, if I yeah, so if my younger self, I would have loved to have met me today. That's super cool to leave. This has been awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. Yeah. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in and we will catch you all next week. Thank you for listening to the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review and subscribe to enjoy future episodes. This episode is brought to you by Disruptive Innovations, a leading tech consulting firm that helps enterprise organizations with their IT strategy, process optimization, and workflow improvement. Contact them and find out more at disruptiveinnovations.net.